All of us want to be the best version of ourselves, but often things get in the way. We can get in our own way. Knowing what our best looks like is one of the biggest struggles of being the best of you. I was going to get right after the teaching, uh, right off the bat here, but God's word says that if we lack wisdom, we should ask for it. Or if we want to pursue wisdom, we should ask for it. So I thought it'd be fitting this morning just to take a moment where we'll be studying about heavenly wisdom to just pray before our Lord and ask for it. So Heavenly Father, God, as we just sang, like we're so dependent on you. And that's a good thing. Your faithfulness, your steadfastness, your care for us. God, we worship you in that. And now in these moments where we turn to your word and we try and understand what you're speaking to us, we pray that your spirit in us just stirs in a way that we grow closer to you in a way that touches our hearts. Help us to understand these things. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're going to be talking about wisdom and what wisdom is within the context of Scripture. But as we think about wisdom, have you ever thought about what it takes to be wise? Or what the difference between wisdom and knowledge or even experience is? Like, would you consider yourself to be a wise person? And if you consider yourself to be a wise person, at what point did you go from just being knowledgeable or smart to feeling wise? In order to be wise, you need to know something But just because you know something, does that mean you're wise? What is wisdom? Is it experience? I've I've read that it takes 10,000 hours to be an expert at something. So that's roughly like 10 years. Is that wisdom? A couple weeks ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary well. And we were able to fly someplace really nice. And yeah, (laughs) so thank you. So... We were able to escape that like negative 50 degree weather that was happening here a couple weeks ago. However, when we flew back, we flew back on a Friday and we were flying into Boston at like 11 o'clock at night. And that was one of the coldest nights. And I'm not going to pretend that I know how weather works, but I do know that as we were coming in for our landing to Boston, the plane was all over the place. I mean, it was that type of turbulence where it just seemed like the whole plane just took a step to the left and then a step to the right, and the wings were dipping back and forth, and we're looking out the window, and the lights are getting closer and closer, and we're getting closer and closer to the landing strip, and right as we were about to touch down, the plane did up one of these touchdown, so much so that, and I've never had this happen before, that the flight attendant came on the speaker and said, uh, thanks for joining us, the weather here is negative 100 degrees, and on your way out, just thank the pilot for that landing, because that was pretty amazing. Okay, so we're walking out of the plane, though, and you know how you get to the end of the aisle, and you can see inside the cockpit, and the the pilot's there, or a couple of pilots there, so we get to the end, and the pilot is just this older guy, and, uh, you know, just well out of flight school, 
calm as a cucumber, leaning up against the seat. He was just like, you know, thanks for flying. You know, he didn't have the hat on. He didn't have the coat on. I don't even think he had a tie on. It was just like an unbuttoned shirt. You know, it's just like cool, calm, collected. Meanwhile, the co-pilot behind him was like full garb, full suit with the wings and the hat. And he's like pacing around this small cockpit, having an anxiety attack, I think, just processing what just happened. But what is that, right? You know, I saw this pilot and I just assumed like the landing was just one of those deals where he's holding on to the wheel and it's just like he is one with the plane and the plane is one with him and, you know, like that sort of feeling. It's that wisdom. How do you get that? Now, I know we all want to make wise decisions. And we all want wisdom. We all want to make the right decisions. But if you came here this morning for a talk about, you know, whether you should take that job or not, or whether the person you're dating is the one, or students here, whether the college, which college you should go to next year, there's some principles within this passage, I think, that can apply to decision-making wisdom. But what James is teaching about is a discerning wisdom. What James is teaching about, as we'll see in a moment, is that there are two types of wisdom. There's heavenly wisdom and there's earthly wisdom. And what we're going to see in those two types of wisdom is that earthly wisdom is self-serving and self-promoting. Whereas heavenly wisdom looks to the other, is others-oriented. So the wisdom we're going to talk about this morning specifically is for the church. And really, this passage of Scripture, as you remember, last week John taught on the beginning of chapter 3, we're discerning the tongue and the power of words and the power of the tongue. You remember that that chapter starts off with a comment about being a teacher in the church. So James is teaching us about wisdom within the context of the church, but some of these principles are going to apply to decision-making. So here's the one thing that I want everybody to kind of be stewing on as we go through this morning. Is that heavenly wisdom brings out the best in you for the sake of others. So heavenly wisdom does not look at one's own interest, but to the interest of others. The type of discerning wisdom that we're talking about is in others' oriented wisdom. And as we want to grow to be the best versions of ourselves and who God is calling us to be, that's a very important framework. The framework of our faith is others-oriented. So when we talk about wisdom, it should be no surprise that it is others-oriented. And as we'll see later on, it produces peace. So James starts this section of chapter 3 with a question. Verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. So right here, just like in chapter 2, James is attaching what we believe with what we do, with how we live. By his good conduct, it shows and works. He's saying that wisdom and understanding are shown by conduct. Not by how much you know, but by how you behave. 
Some translations say in place of conduct, good life, or more specifically, good way of life. So we know this from chapter two, that we don't do anything to earn our faith, but we did learn that faith does something, right? Josh said, faith that is alive does something when it knows it should do something. This is that repeated theme, James 1.22, of don't just be hearers, but be doers. So right off the bat, James is saying, who among you is wise? If you're wise, if you are wise, by your good conduct, you should show it. And that conduct is done in gentleness that comes from wisdom. So right off the bat, he's making a correlation between gentleness and wisdom. James is saying that if you're wise and understanding, your behaviors or what you do or your way of life will be seen in gentleness that comes from wisdom. And that word gentleness in the Greek has this idea behind it of being, well, let's start with what it's not. So it's not this fragile, soft sort of gentleness. The, 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 the word in the Greek actually means almost like uh, the word meekness. So there's this humility and there's this ability to even in the midst of the storms and even in the midst of chaos to be gentle, to be calm, very soft in spirit. So right off the bat, James is saying that heavenly wisdom is led by a heart of gentleness and meekness and humility. One place I read that, that that gentleness, that word in the Greek, it's like a gentle strength. So it's led by gentleness, meekness, and humility. And then he goes on to contrast two different types of wisdom. This earthly wisdom and this heavenly wisdom. So as we're discerning wisdom, he's going to map out two different wisdoms. And he starts in verse 14 and says, but, but if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For that where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. So what is at the center of bitter envy and selfish ambition? This earthly kind of wisdom. We are. Earthly wisdom is self-centered wisdom. We get placed at the center of what we want and what, we're, what we desire. Sometimes we even get placed, sometimes that envy and selfish ambition comes out as our own fear. So it's not always wants and desires, but what motivates us is what we're afraid of, what we may be insecure, insecure about, right? Envy is a longing for something else not a contentment with where we're at. So bitter envy and selfish ambition directly compete with faith. Fear is going to directly compete with faith. So what James is saying is this first filter that we can discern wisdom through is one that's self-centered. And I love how he takes those three words like earthly, unspiritual, and demonic and it almost reminds me of like in movies or like suspenseful movies, like just that zooming in one after the other. Because you hear like earthly and you're like, okay. You hear unspiritual and you're like, oh. And then you hear demonic, you're like, nope. 
right? But he's, but he's layering it on there because there's truth behind it. And important to note here that there is an earthly wisdom. So noting that there's an earthly wisdom suggests to us that there's going to be something in direct competition to heavenly wisdom. So there is an earthly wisdom out there. James is helping us discern between the two. So envy and selfish ambition, if it's self-centered wisdom, if it's not looking to others, and James tells us where that's from. So as we're making decisions, if our decisions are self-centered decisions, our own desires, our own insecurities, our own fears, our own wants, and James calls that earthly, unspiritual. He then goes on to say, though, but the wisdom that's from above, so heavenly wisdom, is first pure and peace-loving and gentle and compliant, full of mercy and good fruits. It's unwavering. It's without pretense. As we read through these, for those of us who know the fruits of the Spirit, you can just sort of see the parallel of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. James starts listing out these fruits of what heavenly wisdom looks like. As you can see, they're, they're not self-centered. They're looking outward. If anything, they're examining our own hearts with an outward look. So right off the bat, we read through this list, and we can start to feel really overwhelmed. Because if we're thinking, all right, I want to be a wise person, I want to make wise decisions, and then we read through this list here, like that's a really tall order. But we have to remember, too, that, that Scripture is here to instruct us. Strip, scripture is here to, to guide us. Scripture is here to, to allow us to filter through what we're experiencing or what we're thinking or what's going on through the lens of God, the heart of God. And so it's not meant to make us feel less than. It's not meant to make us feel like we have fallen short. If anything, it draws us to celebrate more who Jesus is and who we are in him. But it's not meant to make us feel inadequate. And I think this list here, as we're about to go through it, is helpful for us because it helps us evaluate. It helps us to process. And that's what the Next Step email this week is going to do, is, is a tool that will hopefully help you take um, things that you're experiencing in your life uh, decisions that you may have to make, relationships that you may be working through, help you filter through whether you're doing this, entering, entering into this wisely. So if you, if you check that box, we'll send an email out that will give you that little tool there to sort of process, journal through what's happening. But first, so if we take a look at this list, James starts listing out of what heavenly wisdom looks like, we'll see first that it's pure. So that's the first filter. It's like, is it pure? Is it sincere? Is it obeying God? Is it close to the heart of God? 
just pure, no twisted motives, nothing sort of muddling up the water. So is it pure? The next filter is, is it peace-loving? Does it move in the direction of peace? Does it bring a sense of wholeness and oneness to it? This idea of peace that's communicated through Scripture is this sense of wholeness and, one, and oneness. Me, and part of the advantage of being married, is that you have another person that you can filter things through as well. So I know that when things aren't at peace, when Renee and I don't feel one in a decision or with what's going on, that causes us to pause and say, wait a minute, is this really wise? Peace and oneness can also be within ourselves. There's no like unsettled feeling. There's no restlessness. Like God, God is a God of peace and rest and contentment. That's why earlier on it said that, that the selfish ambition and the envy, that leads to chaos. That leads to evil practice. That leads to disorder. A peace-loving wisdom brings this sense of wholeness and oneness. And there's this word gentle. Is it gentle? This is a different gentle than the word that was used earlier in the passage in the original Greek. This gentle is more like considerate. Is it considerate? Is it non-combative? Is it gentle? Tender? James then filters it through. Is it compliant? Is it willing to learn to be com- corrected? If you're compliant, you respond well to instruction. Some translations use the word submissive here. So as we're filtering these things out, is this wise? Is it peace-loving? Is it gentle? Is it compliant? Is it full of mercy and good fruits? That's that idea of compassion and charity. That's so close to the heart of what James is teaching the church, right? This, this idea of not showing favoritism like we learned a few weeks ago or advocating for the powerless as we learned a few weeks ago. So there's a sense of mercy and good fruits. And lastly, it says it's unwavering. This is the part that's in the image of God of just faithful, steadfast. So it's unwavering, without, without pretense. It's set solely on one direction. It's not double-minded. We read back in, in chapter 1, verse 8, that being double-minded and un, is unstable. But it's without pretense. I actually had to look this word up. Pretense is an attempt to make something that is not the case appear to be true. So there's this idea of hypocrisy and kind of being double-minded and two-faced. So is it unwavering? Is it without pretense? So we look at this long list that James gives us, and we start to process through the lens of wisdom. We start to filter through each one of these characteristics. And like I said before, this can feel like an impossible task. But again, don't think of this as a checklist we need to com- complete, but more just a checklist that we need to filter through. Because some of us haven't been walking with Jesus for very long, so it's, if it's, if it's the, an experience type of thing, then what do we do? We don't have the 10,000 hours of walking with Jesus that someone else may have. It doesn't feel as natural on our journey. But this is the hope part. And it's what we talked about earlier. It's how we started this, our time together. Is that we know that in James 1.5 it says, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. 
who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. That's the amazing part about it, is we don't need the 10,000 hours of experience. Sure, it's helpful, but what God's telling us we need is to ask, and it will be given. At the proper moment, in the proper measure, so when you feel that chaos or when you feel that instability or when you feel that sense of like, ah, I can't get there, I can't get there. God's word says to just ask. James reminds us to just ask. And also what that tells us is that lacking wisdom is a thing. Lacking wisdom is a thing. Like James, God knew. James knows. We're not always going to be wise. The point isn't to perfect this. The point is to recognize it and then to ask God for it. And what's so awesome is God gives ungrudgingly. So like he won't hold the fact that we lack wisdom. He doesn't hold it against us. He just meets us where we're at. He's gracious and he's generous with it. So James gives us these two filters, these two lenses to look at wisdom through. And he reminds us that there is an earthly wisdom and that there is a heavenly wisdom. But then he closes with verse 18. It's a beautiful verse. It says, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. Some translations say, by those who make peace. So what's the fruit of this heavenly wisdom? This fruit of heavenly wisdom is this sense of peace that God gives us. Through righteousness. When we think of righteousness, we think back to the story of Abraham from a couple weeks ago and this idea of righteousness before God. His faith was counted as righteousness. So righteousness carries with it this idea of being close to the heart of God. And James is reminding us that, that, that closeness to the heart of God is going to create that peace. It's going to create that peace within our own souls. It's going to create that peace within the church. That peace is that sense of wholeness. That sense of oneness. So peace is close to the heart of God, that inward peace, outward peace. There isn't a restlessness that comes along with it. Because what he said, he said, come to me and I will give you rest, contentment, peace. So out of all of these, after going through all of these filters of heavenly wisdom and what that looks like, he says the result is peace wholeness, oneness. One thing I love about this passage, and like we said, James was the brother of Jesus, and we know that he didn't start following Jesus until after his death and resurrection, but we have to assume that he was around Jesus during his ministry. And so he would have heard the teachings of Jesus. And with this passage of James, one thing that I love about it is that James opens with this idea of wisdom and gentleness. But like that 
strong gentleness, that meekness. When he says, do any of you have wisdom? Then show it in your gentleness. Then he bookends it with this idea of peace and wholeness and oneness. Because he would have heard Jesus say the same thing when Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Jesus talked about gentleness and meekness. Jesus talked about the peacemakers and talked about peace, the peace that we find. So James is bookending his teaching with the words of his brother. And how we should filter through the Sermon on the Mount was all about how we are, how we are citizens of God's kingdom here on earth and what that looks like to be citizens. Where he said, blessed are the gentle or blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I really enjoy what what Martin Lloyd-Jones says when commenting about this phrase, sons of God. He said, God has made peace. He has humbled himself and his son to produce it. That is why the peacemakers are children of God, because what they do is to repeat what God has done. So as we think about heavenly wisdom and what that looks like, and we think about all of those different traits of heavenly wisdom, pure, peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. Who does that make you think of? That makes us think of the one that we follow. The one whose example that we have to follow. So then it's It's no wonder that at the end of it all, he says that this is going to produce that peace. This is going to produce that wholeness and that oneness that my brother was teaching about. Because he said, blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called sons of God. And that idea of being a son of God is close to God's heart. A couple weeks ago, my son had a ceremony at his high school. And we were all there. The family was all there celebrating And he had bumped into his soccer coach who had coached him all the way up to high school. And so this this guy hadn't seen him in four years. And, you know, from being, there's a big difference between being an eighth grader and a senior in high school. So this coach told us that that when he saw my son James, James came over him, shook his hand, said, hey, how are you doing? And he had to stop him like mid-sentence because he was like, you look just like your dad. That's something your dad would do or that's something your dad would say. But isn't that the truth of it? Like, whether he likes it or not, he spent enough time around me and seen me probably approach enough people and shake their hand that he's just like, this is how you do it. But he's a reflection of that. And so when James talks about cultivating peace and making peace through this heavenly wisdom and discerning through heavenly wisdom, That's the result. When we're close to the heart of God, our Father, we we repeat what God has done. Almost to the point where we can't help not to. Because we are a reflection of our Father. And that's the beauty of this heavenly wisdom is that it's just not a self-help list of things to do to make better decisions. James reminds us that at the end of it all, It's a reflection of who God is in us. And that same prince of peace who brought this gospel of peace 
when we're wise, when we're making wise decisions, when our behaviors, right? That's what he said. It wasn't decisions. It was your behavior, your conduct. When our conduct and our behavior is wise, we usher in that same gospel of peace to one another and to the world around us. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians that we, beca- that, that we become the righteousness of God because Jesus, who, he who didn't know any sin, was sin for us, took on sin for us. So Jesus came to bring that same gospel of peace and that same gospel of peace for the sake of others, others-oriented, right? And when we filter through wisdom, that's what it's all about. We're looking at others So because we share in the righteousness of Jesus, we can be wise in our way of life. Because we share in the righteousness of Jesus, we're gentle. We cultivate peace, inward peace, outward peace, our whole way of life. For what? For the sake of others. For the sake of the kingdom. For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of relationships. And in doing so, we proclaim the gospel. We said earlier, heavenly wisdom brings out the best in you for the sake of others. I think it'd be more accurate to say, heavenly wisdom brings out the Jesus in each one of us for the sake of others. This framework of heavenly wisdom brings out the gospel of peace. So James lays it out for us and he lets us know, hey, this is what it shouldn't look like and this is what it should look like. But why? For a better life? That might be part of it. But why? For that peace. That peace that comes only through the gospel of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit lived out through us. So that's the point. As we celebrate communion together, as we close out and take communion together, that's what we're going to celebrate. The Bible says that when part of, of taking communion together is proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. So this morning may have stirred up, you know, thoughts or moments where we know that we have been unwise And if that's the case, release those and repent of those and confess those to the Lord in this moment of of communion. But also celebrate like the righteousness that we have. Celebrate God's sovereignty. Celebrate his faithfulness. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So as we've been taking communion these past few weeks, the band's going to play a little bit after I pray. And when you're ready, you can come forward, grab the communion elements, take communion, use this time as a time of confession, use this time as a time of proclamation. And then once a few minutes have passed, the band is going to lead us in a song where we just are going to celebrate God's faithfulness and his sovereignty over us. Knowing that even though we, we aren't always wise or we don't always exhibit this wise framework that God meets us where we're at. 
and that God brings peace through that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful for your son Jesus and for your word. I'm grateful for instruction. God, I know sometimes I feel so inadequate teaching it, but there's joy in knowing that your spirit is alive and your spirit is bringing things to life in each one of our hearts. And so in this moment too, we, before we uh, take communion together, God, we ask that you just help us be sensitive to your spirit now. Help your word to resonate in our hearts. We invite your spirit to bring to mind areas that we may need to confess. We invite your spirit to bring to mind just, just areas of our own heart that have been unwise, areas of our own heart that have been self-serving. God, we invite your spirit to stir in us that sense of celebration, of proclamation. As we're taking this bread and drinking this cup, that's not just a routine or a ritual that we do, but that in, that in doing that, we are proclaiming the gospel of peace. Prepare our hearts now, God.